Welcome to the IEEE Rebooting Computing Podcast, an IEEE Future Directions Digital Studio production. For this special edition of our podcast, we are taking a look at the development work on the International Roadmap for Devices and Systems, also known as IRDS. IEEE has taken a lead role in building a comprehensive end-to-end view of the computing ecosystem, including devices, components, systems, architecture, and software. In May 2016, IEEE announced the formation of the IRDS under the sponsorship of IEEE Rebooting Computing. And in March 2017, the IRDS team published nine foundational white papers that outline the vital and technical components required to create an official roadmap, something we hope to see in late 2017 or early 2018. To help us understand IRDS and this vital industry roadmap, we invited three technical experts to this podcast. Dr. Eric De Benedictus, member of the technical staff at Sandia National Labs, Dr. Matthew Marinella, principal member of the technical staff also at Sandia National Labs, and Dr. Jeffrey Burr, principal research staff member for IBM. All three were panelists at the 2017 IEEE International Reliability Physics Symposium in Monterey, California, part of the Application Benchmarking Systems and Architecture Emerging Research Devices panel moderated by IEEE Future Direction Senior Director Bill Tonti. So we'll let the experts map it out for us, starting with Dr. Eric De Benedictus, who offers some background info on IRDS and what to expect for the 2017 IEEE Rebooting Computing Week, set for November 6th through the 10th in Washington, D.C. So IRDS is the, uh, is the same group that um, did the ITRS since like the mid and late 1990s or something. And the group is a bunch of volunteers and it's reorganized under IEEE. And in this, this meeting was, uh, so in, in the process of reorganizing or changing its affiliation to IEEE, the mission changed due to the change in the environment. And the change in the environment is that, um, I mean, it used to be that you, you could like make better chips and people would come and buy them, and they'd like they changed the world. I mean, it was the information revolution. But it's turning out now that just making better chips doesn't really make them work better in a system. And so there's more interest in understanding how, uh, you know, computer systems interact with the chips so that you can actually get a better computer system instead of just getting, you know, other chips that don't really work any better in the system. And so the, the, the roadmap changed its name, and it added – you know, and it shifted its focus from more or less strictly on memory and microprocessors to, you know, keeping those memory and microprocessors, but also computer architecture and the applications that people want to run on these systems. Well, uh, so IRDS is the immediate goal is, or the next major goal is to produce a roadmap by like November. So there's a roadmap presentation in November at the ICRC week in Washington, the International Conference on Rebooting Computing. In Washington, I think it's the Rebooting Computing Week, which includes IRDS and the, and the conference. Um, and the, the, the plan has always been for the roadmap to, uh, you know, be influential on understanding what the research priorities needed to be to move the computer industry forward, semiconductor industry forward, and 
you know, that remains the objective. And, of course, that requires people pay attention to it, but that hasn't really been a problem in the past. The structure of the roadmap since the mid-1990s is that, uh, you know, you make essentially like a spreadsheet where you have years on the horizontal axis starting with now, like whatever the year was, mid-1990s, or now is 2017, and going out about a dozen years into the future. And then there are a whole series of columns that are describing the parameters of computers as you move off into the future. And the the traditional issues were going to be things like semiconductor properties like, you know, line width, but then some things that are more directly interesting to users, which is how many bits on a memory chip or the clock rate of a microprocessor, all right? And that's the way it used to be, and it will continue that way in the future. But what? But in the future, there's some things that are being added due to the change in the industry. And so one of the things is sort of at a technology level, there's a shift to three dimensions. And it's like, you know, so instead of just having a two, you know, one layer of a two-dimensional surface, there'll be multiple layers stacked up and giving you more functionality per unit volume, essentially. And uh, so... So that's that's a, an issue. 3D is an issue being covered. But then in addition, it's more and more clear nowadays that what you're really interested in is the performance of the computer on certain applications, like, you know, video rendering on a cell phone or something like that, right, where, you know, the cell phone has a battery with a certain amount of energy in it, and you want to be able to render video with some precision, and you want to know how long you can do that before the battery runs down, which, of course, means your processor has to have low power. It has to be both capable and capable at low power. And so there's a, so the new thing now is that there's a series of application drivers or application benchmarks. And the idea is to get to, you know, over years into the future, you know, in years into the future, 2020 or something like that, you know, what's the, you know, I mean, I don't know if this exact parameter is going to be in there, but how many hours of, uh, you know, video playback can you get per some battery size type of thing? And then, you know, a few years later, it'll be how many the same question, but you might get more hours because the technology is better. Well, so, so the basic deal is that on – it's a whole week. On Monday, there's kind of like non-public meeting of the roadmap. And then on Tuesday, there's a outbrief of the roadmap. Um, it's not going to be available entirely in printed form, you know. I mean, I guess it will – we're not printing things on paper anymore anyway, but but, it, but it's not necessarily going to be totally complete at that point in terms of all the formatting and editing, but there'll be an outbrief on that Tuesday for, you know, what the conclusions of the IRDS group are for the future computing 15, you know, out about 12 or 15 years. Um, then on let's see, Wednesday and Thursday is the ICRC conference, which is a conference with Presentations based on peer-reviewed papers. The peer-reviewed papers will be published in a proceedings on IEEE Explorer. So it's a real conference. It's a technical conference by by the people that are. I mean, this may sound kind of cliche, but it's going to be by the people that are rebooting computing. You know, the, the, the worker bees in the field, right? And then on Friday is an industry summit, and you know, I'm not a total expert on industry summits from IEEE, but but basically that's for more of people that are, like, influential in their industry but not necessarily writing papers on rebooting computing. I mean, more like managers or something. I don't really know what this is about. You should talk to somebody that understands what these are happening. But on Friday, there's the industry summit kind of ex kind of explaining in a different way the, the future of computing as, as rebooting computing sees it. 
you know, I think one of the interesting directions moving forward is that it looks like the shift to three dimensions from two dimensions can have a transformative effect on the industry in that, um, you know, the, the two-dimensional scaling that we had for so long led to what's what's often called the von Neumann bottleneck. And, and what that means is that, you know, people keep building or the industry kept building these chips that were denser and denser and denser. And in principle, they could run really fast. But the fact is that they, they didn't really give a lot of improvement because there was this bottleneck between the processor and the memory. And it seems that we're at the cusp now of having three-dimensional chips that have, you know, multiple layers and scaling not in the X and Y dimensions, but in the Z dimension, which resolves that bottleneck because it increases the bandwidth and shortens the distances. So we may see some uh, radically new architectures coming out that are much more efficient for the type of problems we want to want to run. And, and that's something that's of a lot of current attention and uh, to the IRDS group. Up next is Dr. Matthew Marinella. Previous roadmaps focused on node size, but Dr. Marinella's group takes aim on the most promising emerging memory devices for future computing industry roadmaps. For the last, essentially since the beginning of the roadmap, it's been tracking node size, as you're probably aware, node size, which corresponds to physical gate length. And that is sort of what's coming to an end. Um, and uh, so, so having that single metric, I guess, that we've had since, since sort of the beginning of this roadmap, which was, like, I believe, in the early 90s or late 80s. Um, uh, so, so that being gone kind of, it, it's not gone, I guess you could say. It's still kind of scaling, but the, the, uh, the number that the semiconductor companies use for node is not quite linked to the physical, close, as closely to the physical um, feature anymore. And that's kind of expected to, to slow down in the next few generations. ITRS, you know, they're they're well known for like tracking. Uh, for example, in the late 90s, we were going from half micron, 350 nanometer, to, to quarter micron, to 180 nanometer, 130, 90 nanometer, uh, and that was you know essentially the tracking of Moore's law. We're looking now essentially for a new kind of set of metrics to define the improvement. And uh, something I've come across in, in a few different communities. Um, one, it was pointed out by uh, John Kumi at, at Stanford. Uh, and he's actually uh, a person who studies energy efficiency and, and energy usage. And he's tracked uh, energy efficiency of computing since the ENIAC, which was one of the first computers in the 1970s. Uh, and he's tracked that kind of through now. And uh, I, I've done a little bit of work of my own looking at that. Um, changing it to, to some more common units that electrical engineers use uh, and kind of looking up rather than by instruction. I, I essentially normalize it a little bit more for engineering purposes, but if you look at it, the ENIAC computer was about 100 joules per uh, essentially like a 10-bit operation. And today's systems, uh, the, the best systems like this NVIDIA P100 that came out recently is about uh, – uh, 30 picojoules for a 16-bit operation. So we've gone something like uh, 12 orders of magnitude over the last 70 years. And Kumi kind of showed this has been a, a fairly steady progression. We've exponentially uh, increased the the amount of computing that we can do for, for fixed power um, 
every uh, every decade we increase that by about a, a order of magnitude and a half. Um, and, and so really that's a good way, in, in my mind, to define the progress in computing overall. And, and what that means kind of in a in a practical sense is, you know, the, the, the power that you can get from your, your wall outlet to use for a computer remains at about 500 watts, say. So if you're exponentially in, increasing the performance per watt, that means that for that 500 watts of power that you, you would normally, uh, you know, plug in a computer to your wall, you'll get an exponential increase in, in performance for that same power, uh, you know, year after year, decade after decade. And so that's essentially what's been happening since 1946. And, um, you know, Moore's Law helped that a lot. And actually, it's really more of Denard scaling. So for for a, a decent period of time, from the 70s until about 2005, uh, was the Denard scaling area era, which you could probably call it, uh, where the transistors themselves were, uh, as, as they were shrinking, the, the voltage and current of the transistor was shrinking, and so uh, the, the, the clock speed every generation could be increased uh, without um, increasing the power density. So essentially that meant that the transistors themselves were allowing this performance per watt uh, to increase or the energy per computation to decrease. And so um, so that was about a maybe 30-ish year period, uh, which has ended now. And so now actually we're seeing more of the energy efficiency gains come from um, come from improvements like high bandwidth memory. Uh, that's on the newest NVIDIA GPU cards where the, the DRAM main memory is actually integrated very, very close to the, the GPU uh, silicon chip itself. So there's a, a set of DRAMs which typically have to go through a very power inefficient bus that are, that are actually uh, in, a, in a different spot on a motherboard. Um, for at least GPUs now, they actually have those integrated uh, at, at sort of the silicon via level next to the, the chip itself. And so things like this, sort of heterogeneous integration, is probably what's going to move us through for the next decade or so of energy efficiency. Um, and I think after that, you know, people are going to be heavily exploring new paradigms like analog computing, neuromorphic, and, and quantum we're hearing more about, um, approximate computing. Well, so in the past, the roadmap has mostly um, has, has tracked this node size, and it kind of coordinated everybody. So you knew, for example, in the year 2000, that 180 nanometer on 8-inch wafers was going to happen. So it wasn't, um, I guess, you know, it, it wasn't uh, it wasn't looking too far out necessarily. But the group that I'm in, and, and it was it was really useful to coordinate. You know, I mean, if if Intel and, and uh, you know, at the time, AMD and IBM and all the fabs agreed that, you know, year 2000, we're going to have 180 nanometer, and the equipment manufacturers, everybody knew everything had to be ready at this particular time. That was the, the traditional function of the roadmap. Um, I think some of this is, is, is changing, and the, the group that I'm in has always been looking at devices that are 10 to 15 years out. Uh, and so what, what our group does is try to evaluate the most promising emerging memory and computation uh, and, and uh, other types of devices that will allow us to reach these next generations of, of uh, energy-efficient computing, essentially. So, um, so the, the, the biggest thing that our group has done over the last uh, several versions of the ITRS roadmap, and this is called the Emerging Research Devices Group, 
um, we've, we've tracked the most promising uh, emerging uh, memory devices, uh, which, which some of these include uh, magnetic types of memory, uh, ferroelectric memory, resistive memory, conducting bridge memory. And these are expected to help in increase power efficiency basically by serving as a storage class memory. So they would, uh, they would eliminate a lot of the uh, power inefficiencies of, of the memory hierarchy as it is right now. And, and um, you know, many of the memory manufacturers are actually looking toward using some of these new technologies in, uh, in storage class memory. I mean, the, the, Probably best example right now is Intel's Octane, which is going to come out soon, and that uses storage class memory. They haven't named it yet what it actually is, but it's one of these new technologies uh, to provide a very, very large, essentially like a main memory. Um, so you have a main memory that's closer to the processor. It's much larger, so you don't have to use your NAND flash-based hard disk, which is a huge memory sink. Uh, and in the future, you know, we'll see probably higher performance storage class memory to where you don't need DRAM at all and you can integrate it potentially with the logic itself, or at least very, very close to the logic itself. Uh, so a lot of the, the, the energy inefficiency of today's computer, uh, I guess, you know, to back up a little bit, uh, uh, you know, an Intel processor on the processor itself is doing computations in the femtojoules per flop, moving things back and forth between registers. Um, but then, uh, you know, you can't, so a register is made of SRAM, which is very big, and so you can only have tens of, of megabytes of SRAM on a, on a chip. So after your, your program needs more than that in data, it has to go to the DRAM. Well, now when you go to the DRAM, you're going from a 10 femtojoule type operation, uh, or maybe 10 or 100 femtojoule, up to a 100 picojoule. So you're actually jumping uh, three orders of magnitude in energy per operation. And... Um, so what storage class memory and, and sort of integrating, heterogeneously integrating and, and uh, monolithically integrating memory with logic would keep that femtojoule number even when you have to go off chip. So it would drastically lower the, the uh, system power. And then the other, the other thing that, that IRDS has traditionally, uh, the, the Emerging Research Group device uh, um, group has kept track of and uh, um, over the last uh, 10 years or so is emerging uh, logic devices. And so there was a big search for kind of the next switch that would replace the transistor. And uh, we've participated in kind of categorizing all of those. We worked with the uh, initiative called NRI, uh, which was helping benchmark. And, and actually, um, Intel did an excellent job recently kind of benchmarking a lot of these. Um, the unfortunate thing about the, the new switches is that the, the switches themselves, many of them are not uh, necessarily better than than the uh, you know, Intel's kind of flagship silicon FinFET. Um, the the biggest thing that we need with with the switches really right now is to lower the operating voltage, which which is very difficult. Um, but lowering the operating voltage would would reduce our CV squared energy losses, which is you know we're kind of been fundamentally pegged at, at a certain level of CV squared energy losses, and this has meant that even even uh, as we add more transistors to a chip, we can't actually run more because of power density considerations. But if you lower the voltage and you lower the CV squared energy losses, um, you can actually run them faster without melting the silicon. You know, one example we could think of is, is Google uh, released recently, not, not recently, maybe about five years ago now, um, a study on, on what's called deep learning. And they, they looked at, um, so they used a, essentially a data center cluster 
to train on about 10 million images. And uh, it was actually a, a, um, a cluster training, so it was unsupervised. And, and at the end of the thing, the thing uh, recognized different features, including things like cat faces or human faces. And it was um, essentially from these, these 10 million pictures, it could, it could um, sort of categorize all of these different types of things. So this was a very simple kind of demonstration of what deep learning could do. But if you look at it, that study, and Google has said their studies are are essentially limited to what they can train in one week using their, you know, essentially their supercomputer. Well, if a supercomputer, so if if computing continues to get more energy efficient per, you know, essentially per flop or per instruction equivalent, uh, the the supercomputers, of course, take that gain. So a data center, you could imagine in 10 years, maybe it'll do two or three orders of magnitude more. Well, that means that, you know, now you may have extremely good uh, natural language processing. Uh, so, so you may be able to, you know, do a Google search where you say the search and you say, I want to see videos of children running. And the neuromorphic training is, is good enough that it can actually go through videos, which are very complicated uh, in, in the neural network world. Uh, needs a lot of computing resources, but you know, I would I would envision that Google is looking at things like this. If you had enough computing power, you could train uh, you could train on you know millions of say YouTube videos to, to to the point where you could do a search and you know ask for specific actions to come out. Um, so also, I guess you could think of at the at the cell phone level itself, um, you could you could have your cell phone doing learning on your own. Um, Say your own database of pictures and videos. I mean, when you the energy efficiency of, of computing essentially means that every form factor, so the cell phone, the desktop, they all continue to gain orders of magnitude in computing performance. And uh, and I think actually in the next maybe you know 10 or 15 years, a lot of this is going to be seen in, in advances with AI. Because uh, if you look at if you look at sort of the artificial intelligence world, which which um, you know, in particular, the kind of neural learning algorithms. Uh, the algorithms haven't changed that much since the 1980s uh, to, to today, but the things we've been able to do with them have gotten just amazingly more uh, robust and interesting, such as deep learning, uh, and that's largely due to the, the hardware, and then the algorithms have mainly changed uh, just to adapt to a much larger computing cluster, more powerful computing cluster, but like the fundamental part of the algorithms haven't actually changed that much. So I think this advance in computing itself, will, you'll, you'll see uh, a lot in AI. Concluding our podcast is Dr. Jeffrey Burr, who offers some background on why IRDS is necessary based on the expiration of Moore's Law, what's around the corner for the computing industry, and how industry professionals can get involved. Okay, well, I mean, what we tried to say at the panel was to discuss the incentive behind or reasoning behind the, um, or at least a big chunk of the reasoning behind the transition from having been in an ITRS, International Technology Roadmap for Semiconductors, uh, and then the, 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 the reason that we're now pushing into this International Roadmap for Devices and Systems. And IEEE's involvement, I think, is a happy um, accident or, or serendipity in the sense that IEEE was, um, had been and sort of convinced uh, by Tom Conti and others 
um, to, to start doing this rebooting computing initiative. Um, and so you might think of those as our transition out of ITRS and their transition sort of to rebooting computing are realizations of exactly the same thing, but from different layers of the stack. So ITRS, we were down at the devices and the, and the silicon wafers and so on, looking at the way things were going and realizing we need to understand more about how these transistors are going to be combined into systems. It's not just enough to make more of them, make them smaller and faster. We're not able to do that at the same pace we um, used to be able to. So in order to enable future progress in the semiconductor industry and in, for, for society at, as large and, and, and make sure that the, this whole semiconductor business continues to be relevant, we need to think more about how are these going to get used, which means we have to learn more about what's up farther up in the stack. And I think from the top down, from the IEEE rebooting computing, um, one of the approaches, uh, there's a chart in, 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 in I showed at the uh, panel session that shows Moore's Law and transistors that's always increasing on an exponential scale, even through 2010. But the, the power is flattening, the frequency is flattening, the single thread performance is even going down. Uh, and what is accompanying that is an increase in the number of cores. And I think the computer scientists and folks like Tom Conti began to realize that for some workloads, having uh, a computer where you give me 10x the capability by having 10 cores, uh, they can program to that and they can get the 10x performance. But in other workloads, that doesn't help at all. It just makes it 10 times harder to write code, and it sometimes it's not even that much better. Um, so they wanted to de dig further down into the stack and understand how can they work with the folks who do circuits, the folks who do architectures, to, um, you know, rather than just sort of blindly add more cores to, th to, to, to work with them to, to essentially reboot computing, right, to, to think about how are we going to continue to make more and more capable computers. I think it's um, how do we enable continued system performance in an era when Moore's Law or whatever was behind Moore's Law or behind our success that we attribute to Moore's Law, um, that, that the, those factors are changing. Um, technically, and, and again, this is something where I have to be careful because one could get into an argument over semantics that aren't really that important. But technically, Moore's Law is really a statement that we're going to put more transistors on a chip. Uh, and Moore's original incentive, if I understood correctly, was that um, it, that ends up being the most effective price point, right? That as I put more transistors on the chip, I have more capability, that ends up being the most effective dollars per, uh, or, or the, the most computation I can provide per dollar. And he you know, connected the dots in the 60s and, and realized that this was growing at a particular pace and was going to only keep pace growing. Uh, and in the, in, um, in sort of print journalism or, 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 or um, it's widely ascribed uh, to increase in the number of transistors. But really, in, in the end, it's all about increased system performance in the same platform or at the same price or in the same power envelope. Right? And if we had found some way to keep the, the number of transistors exactly the same, but keep making the computers that much more impressive, then we would have gone that route. Right? It just turns out that when you can make more transistors, um, you have more capability. Um, one thing I pointed out at the panel session is that accompanying the first two to three decades of Moore's Law was a, uh, a, 
a phrase that we refer to as Denard scaling app, named after Bob Denard, who's an IBM fellow. Uh, and I'm sure there were many, many people who worked on the, these sorts of ideas, but Bob published this seminal paper in the mid, early to mid-70s um, that pointed out that when you shrink a transistor, when you, um, you make it smaller, if you're careful about how you scale the voltage, the gate thickness, the various lengths of things, then you can end up with a transistor that is both smaller, which means you can do Moore's Law by putting more of them together, but that transistor will be faster and lower power for free while you do that. And we basically rode that curve uh, through my entire lifetime, from the late 60s to the early 2000s. Uh, and then two parts of that got difficult to do. Um, it, one of the components of Denard scaling was decreasing the voltage. And we got to the point where if you do that too much, then the difference in current between off and on in the transistor is no longer enough. And that has to do with the uh, 60 millivolt per decade slope turn-on of the devices. And then the other problem is that when you make the gate too thin, thin, you start to get quantum mechanical tunneling through it, and your, your off current starts to rise rapidly. Um, so we had to stop scaling down the voltage. We had to stop scaling down the, the um, gate thickness. Uh, we solved some of these problems by doing things like high-K metal gates. We solved some of these problems by making complex systems that have billions of transistors, but actually, at any, any one time, hundreds of millions of those uh, transistors are off, um, so-called dark silicon, um, when you don't need them. So those, those are tricks that we have been using over the last decade or so to continue um, what you would refer to as Moore's Law. And I think IARDS is sort of a, a realization we need some more tricks like that out of device things. We also need to, to um, bridge our efforts between devices and architectures, devices and circuits, devices and systems uh, in order to enable continued improvement um, across workloads that are of importance. And uh, we basically, RODS is a realization, and, and the part that I'm in it is a realization that in the old days we had it easy. Uh, we just made faster transistors, made more of them, and somebody else took them and did great things with them, and we didn't need to worry or even understand what they were going to do with them. It w wasn't important. Um, because it all it all worked, and now we're we're in order to drive innovation, we're all going to have to understand what each other is doing. The systems people have to know a little bit more about devices. Device people have to know a lot more about systems, uh, and and those tie into the aspects of the new IRDS, um, particularly the category that I'm uh, the the IFT, the um, International Focus Team that I contribute to is called Applications Benchmarking. Um, I also contribute to the Beyond CMOS. Um, so I'm a, a member of that. I'm also a member of this applications benchmarking. And there we try to connect um, the idea of benchmarking performance on workloads of importance. So the sub-team in particular that I'm uh, responsible for within applications benchmarking is called feature recognition. And so this is the idea that we have these deep neural networks um, that power a lot of the things that Google and Facebook and Baidu and other places on image recognition, speech recognition, those sorts of things. And we ha can we make a roadmap of how hardware improvements have made this, have accelerated that, and with the idea of um, setting a path where future, to, to motivate, to drive research all the way from the academic level, um, government sponsorship, government uh, funding, uh, and in, in industrial research that will essentially continue that particular roadmap and continue to produce hardware innovations that will drive forward 
um, innovation in that particular subfield. Uh, and that's just one of the areas, application areas, that we're interested in applications benchmarking. Uh, I can read off the other ones. It's, it's big data analytics, discrete event simulation, physical system simulation, optimization, graphics and, and uh, virtual reality, artificial reality, media processing, and cryptographic codecs. And so there's our different um, people within our team who are sort of experts in each of those areas with the idea of collecting benchmarks in order to help um, drive future innovation to continue the roadmaps for hardwares that will, that will essentially be um, what people in that field will say, oh my God, thank God you built this. Um, this is exactly what I need um, next year, two years, five years down the road. The other thing that I, th I think we, sh we I would hope that we could convey in this podcast is that this is not a, a closed team where the committee has already been uh, determined and, and um, people who are just learning about this cannot contribute. We, we definitely welcome um, the advice and expertise of people who have thought deeply about these sorts of things. Um, there are representatives from industry, um, such as myself. There's representatives from the national labs, representatives from academia. Um, and we welcome all sorts of ideas. There might be uh, application areas that we have completely missed the boat on and need to be added. Um, there might be aspects where we have um, an oversight. And so this is a, a continuing living document. As, as you say, we will publish a roadmap this year. Um, but then if people tell us that, hey, you missed the boat on this application area or these two application areas, they really need to be merge together and, and emerge as three different application areas with very different benchmarks. Um, or if we've missed new devices, um, we, we welcome people's input. Uh, it, it's always a possibility to, to get involved. All that's required is, is a little bit of, of time to participate in these telecons. Uh, occasionally we have these, these in-person meetings where we try to all to get together or at least have people call in by WebEx. Um, but it's basically people um, willing to contribute their time and, and energy and expertise into um, really setting a, a pre-competitive roadmap um, that, that sort of helps make sure everybody's efforts are, are, are channeled in, in the most effective way without um, anybody losing their, their, their proprietary information. Because, of course, as things get closer and closer to product, proprietary information is all, all, also important. So this is more long-range planning type of thing. Thank you for listening to our special edition podcast on IRDS. Discover more about the IEEE Rebooting Computing Initiative and listen to other podcasts in this series by visiting our web portal at rebootingcomputing.ieee.org. And for more details on IRDS, visit irds.ieee.org.